Hi, I'm Stacey Schumacher-Rowan, Editor-in-Chief of Hospitality Design Magazine with HD's What I've Learned podcast. Today, I sat down with Openbox founder and principal, Marquis Stilwell. It seems there is nothing he and his New York design and research firm can't do. His projects promote inclusion and equity, rethink the norm, and bring people together. Seen in forward-thinking concepts for Black Girls Code, the DC Public Library, and the Low Line. Stillwell is also a film producer and co-founder of the Urban Ocean Lab, an organization focused on developing policy solutions for coastal cities. Our conversation spans the different fascinating facets of his career, and it's clear that Stillwell's mantra can be boiled down to one succinct remark that he made. Empathy is a muscle, he says. It's something you have to practice and build every day. Hi, I'm here with Marquise. Marquise, thanks so much for being here with us today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for the invite. I really appreciate the platform that you've created, and I'm very excited to be here. Um, Well, I'm excited. I'm a huge fan. So we always start this podcast at the beginning. So where did you grow up? Uh, I split my time between Midwestern kids. So, you know, I was born in Ohio, um, but split my time between early years in Ohio and Colorado Denver area. So, and were you always like a creative kid, or you know, was creativity part of your growing up? What were you know? I think every kid is right. I mean, we're all born artists, and we're all born creative, and somehow life strips that away, and we're we're told we're not supposed to be that. Um, But I've just I'm I'm hard at listening, so I never believed that and listened to that, and I've always just maintained my creative energy from childhood on to now. And were your parents creative at all or, um, or were they? Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, growing up in the community I grew up in, I would say, you know, music and the arts and dance and all that. That's just a very natural part of, of my upbringing and the community that I grew up in. And so um, I would say that, I wasn't, say, an anomaly of kid, you know, who was creative. I think everyone around me was pretty creative, and I benefited from that. You know, my grandfather was an artist, and, you know, as far as, you know, who are those individuals and what are those moments that kind of helped to amplify that, certainly, you know, those things are key influencers, and going to art museums and things like that help to amplify things that you already have or things that you're interested in. But I wouldn't say that, um, you know, I was the kid who was the only one that was creative. So, yeah. Did you grow up in like a big family or? Yeah, 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 definitely. It was a big family, you know, lots of cousins and uncles and aunties and things like that. So, um, lots of influence. Um, you know, I was one of the younger ones. I was in the family as well. And so, you know, a lot of people that I would follow behind and, and learn from. So, so yeah. What did you, uh, you know, I feel like always as kids, we have ideas of what we want to be, but what did you want to be when you grow up? And I mean, I, I don't think that um, most kids that look like me even have the privilege to think about those type of things, right? I mean, I think that for for me, it was, yeah, you had some dreams about doing certain things. You enjoyed sports, you know, creative, but, you know, you also didn't have individuals that looked like you in positions that you may have desired to be if you don't see those faces, right? And so it's not like I grew up with, someone that was an architect or a lawyer or a doctor that looked like me um, that didn't limit my vision of myself. But I would say there wasn't this clear path of saying, I want to be X. I think for many of individuals like myself, um, there's a balance between knowing what you don't want to do, which is just as important as knowing what you want to do. And so I think that those are my guiding principles of how I got to where I am today is I also knew what I didn't want to do and where I didn't want to end up. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, as you said, just as important. Yeah, definitely. So 
what did you do before you launched Openbox? You know, I mean, I always say Openbox is uh, like, you know, a third iteration of uh, things that I've been doing, you know, pretty much through, you know, most of my 20s and 30s and just uh, playing and experimenting. You know, this idea of startup culture is fairly new before you were just, you know, either someone who invented stuff or someone who just tried stuff. And um, we've created a culture of startup. But for me, I was always starting things and doing things. I, I had my own paper route when I was a kid. Um, you know, I shined shoes. So this idea of the hustle and getting things done, it used to be very much just that was life. I mean, small businesses are the backbones of this country. Um, you know, we're the ones who actually hire the most and, you know, employ and grow careers. And so, you know, I'm just a part of, you know, that culture and community of people who have constantly built and started things, even if it was just a one person shoe shining stand um, or a paper route all the way to having different iterations of partners that have been doing what I'm doing up to this point. So Openbox is just an extension of, of the hustle. Love it. If you described Openbox to someone, what, how would you describe it? I always say that, you know, what we do as a design and research firm is really understanding how people come together. And that's what we design for is, is the we. And when you think about everyday life, even as individuals, what you're really trying to do is get to the we. Um, no matter how much you may like to spend time alone, you ultimately want to get to the we to tell the story of you spending time alone. <laughs> so, you know, even if you go on a hike by yourself, you can't wait to tell a friend what you saw. Right. And too many times, you know, design has been focused on the individual user experience um, and the shiny object of design. And for us, we're really looking at the design of how we come together, why we come together, and and how to create better conditions for when we come together. And what's the story behind the name? Well, the name is kind of two poems. So one, I wanted a name that really represented this openness, this idea of iterations and fluidity. And then I also wanted to embed it in a story of some individuals who had overcome something. And so Henry Box Brown um, is a pretty famous story of someone that was a slave and basically mailed himself to freedom, um, mailed himself from the South to the North um, in a box. And I love that story because it's leveraging the things that are oppressing you, things that are, you know, quote, holding you back to actually leverage that to create your own freedom. And so I love the fact that the government that was creating the conditions of him living in slavery, he actually used the system of the U.S. Postal to mail himself out of freedom as well. And I really believe that when we think about design and we think about the process of design and what it means to design for a community, you know, how might the community also leverage the culture, the um, the excitement in the moment, what it means to live in their neighborhood um, where everyone wants to come to and what people are excited about, but don't always recognize it. And so for us, it's about creating a platform to help those voices be more recognized and how might we leverage that to hopefully create conditions to be surprised. And in our, we featured you in our November issue and you yeah. said that listening was the most important aspect of the human-centered design approach and that design is there to listen. Can you talk about why that's so important and how you, you know, use that in your everyday practice? Yeah, I mean, listening is so important. It's, a, it's uh, I always say, you ask the question, are you listening or are you waiting to be heard? And I think most conversations are like a dialogue between two individuals who are waiting to be heard versus individuals who are listening. And so for us, we're there to listen. We're not there to be heard. Uh, I always say, you know, 
life is not about coming up with answers. And unfortunately, you know, yeah, I talk about my education, but it's not something that I like to lead with. It's not something that is the, the top of, say, what has made me successful. Because education is all about teaching us how to answer questions, right? We're graded on how well we answer questions on a test. I think the gap in education is helping to teach people how to ask better questions. And life is about asking better questions. It's the yes and, right? And as you grow in your career, as you develop out new projects, the results of those projects is because you asked better questions, not because you had better answers. And better questions require really good listening, intentional listening, and guarding insights really quickly through listening, not sitting around waiting to be heard. I love that. I'm going to instill that in my boys because I think that's, uh, I don't know, I absolutely love it. And I think more people need to hear that. Um, what, what kind of projects are you working on right now? Or is there a project that you think really defines the work that you do at OpenBox? You know, for us, you know, we, it's really important for us to work on projects that allow us to be at day zero and before day zero when it comes to really engaging with community walking in with intentions to really truly listening, um, getting to a place where yeah, yeah, the, the challenge with development, challenge with the work that we do, architects need stories and language. But at the same time, you don't want to get so ahead of that, that you present communities with something that really questions your intention for how they're involved, right? So one of the adage that we always say is that save your renderings for the third date, right? So when you're trying to show renderings, the general public doesn't understand that it's a rendering, meaning it's just a kind of a prototype example of what could potentially be possible. They take it as full face value saying, wow, so you didn't even think about asking me about this and you just took what you thought I wanted and turned it into something. For us, being able to work at day zero and even before day zero to really engage and that's what we love those are the types of projects that we're touching and you know even partnering with nina nor curioso to love um she and i share that type of thinking of let's start creating better conditions for how whether it's hospitality um rest you know hotels restaurants um communities are changing rapidly how might we create better conditions for how communities are being developed, how restaurants are being built, how hotels are being built by getting ahead of the curve of actually engaging with the community in a meaningful way and then taking all of us on a journey to when it is actually the keys are turned. So those are the types of projects that we're on and, and love to do. And how, how do you approach that? How do you engage the community? Is there something that you... All are doing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's all about being organic. It's about looking at both formal and informal leaders within or within communities. It's not about just going to the same organizations, whether it's, you know, churches, community centers, schools. It's, it's looking beyond um, what we would consider those core individuals that are always showing up to community meetings. Um, community meetings also are very difficult at the timing, where they are, when they are. Not everyone can show up. So we go to the homes. We go to where people are. So for us, community engagement begins with going where people are, being where they are, speaking the language that they're speaking, and making sure that the people on your team also can reflect the community, um, be a part of the community, and that, again, Leveraging, using the language, right? Sometimes we're, we're so academic or we're always using all the acronyms and, and, and then you're afraid sometimes, well, if I boil it down, then how do I bring it back? Well, you can, you can. And you can speak to communities in a way that allows them to understand the process without always speaking architecture and design language. And I think that we all need to get better at knowing how to do that. Right. Is there anything you've learned from any communities that you're working with that has been surprising or motivating or innovative in your um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the lessons of, you know, saving your renders for the third date, um, understanding that development isn't a bad thing, that we all want that. Uh, and this design by committee, um, that's not what we do. We're, we're not creating a platform where, you know, we're putting out a survey and seeing who likes this color and this is the favorite color of the community. That's not what we do. Um, what we do do is go out and understand what is the fabric of the culture, um, who are the individuals, and being able to translate that into the built environment that helps us to decide how we're displaying, whether it's through color, through materials. We're great at understanding and building that bridge and having the language of designers translated into architecture, but also translating that back into the community and continuing to build that bridge in between um, both of the organizations. I understand that there's a goal here. A goal is to build something, right? This isn't just about making everyone feel perfectly good and, and having the community check boxes. That's not what this is about. This is about progress. And we're really good at helping to create conditions for progress. Communities want to do better. And if we come to the communities early, often, and we go to them, not asking them to come to us, you're creating those conditions. Got it. I love it. And then you said um, in that same interview, and I'm going to read it. So spaces tell stories when people don't see themselves in those spaces and aren't involved in the design process, they don't see their stories be told, which I think is super powerful. How, how can design be more inclusive and equitable? I mean, day one, design needs to bring people of color, women um, at leadership roles in design firms, create better conditions for them to start their own design firms. Um, secondly, we got to get rid of the pro bono stuff. People need to be paid. Uh, pro bono is unfair to small businesses and minority owned businesses who cannot afford to participate in your pro bono you know, design challenge um, though you believe that that may get you the best, um, those organizations should be paid. And so I, I definitely challenge the notion of the design challenges that are asking design firms to do things for free, because unfortunately you're going to get the best from firms who can afford to do that and not those who cannot. So hire smart, hire great people, people of color, women, pay those people, and then also work with them. And this is not about, oh, take a risk. It's not, you're not taking a risk because you are, every time you work with the same organization that you've been working with for the same 15 years, you're taking a risk of marginalizing excellence because you're only going to keep getting the same thing. So when you say, hey, take a risk and hire a black firm or hire a woman-owned firm, that's not a risk. To me, you're, you're actually stepping into a next level of excellence because the risk is to keep doing the same thing over and over again. So I, I would argue if you keep with the same firms that look just like you, you're not really growing. You're not really challenging yourself. So go out and hire, pay them well, and continue to, to help grow them. Right. How do you hire for your own firm? Do Intentionally. You yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm very intentional. Whether, you know, if I'm working with a recruiter, um, working with individuals. Um, I'm constantly making sure that I have a good mix of people, women, uh, minorities, individuals who, you know, look differently, um, come from different disciplines and background. I also am constantly just meeting people. Most of the engagements that we have, most of the people that we bring on, it's very organic. The challenge that I say with this country a lot of times when we talk about empathy, we're empathetically out of shape, one. Secondly, we don't have a good mixture of friends. So these CEOs who are complaining, it's obvious that you don't have friends that look differently than you. If I walk into a room and I'm constantly around the people who only look like me, even me as a minority, I'm not gonna grow. And so make sure it's organic. Everything that I do, it's about meeting and greeting and crossing paths with people that are different than me. That requires you to be a bit uncomfortable. 
that's the challenge with continuing to build your empathy muscles, right? Empathy is a, it's a muscle. Um, it's something that you have to practice and build every day. And so if you're a head of a company and you find yourself in the same circles every day, that's why you have the same problems. Yeah, I totally agree. And um, have you, talking about empathy, do you think you've become even yourself more empathetic as a leader over the past year? Since I think today is the year of a lockdown. Oh, yeah, I think, I think what has happened over the course of the year, particularly for individuals like myself, is that I think we're engaging in better language with individuals who may not have had to go through things, you know, and it's like, you know, someone who may go through something that you've been through many times and now you have language to actually communicate and amplify it at a higher level. And I think that we're all like vibrating at a higher level, at least those who want to be plugged into this vibration, we're, we're vibrating at a higher level because now we have certain language of what does it mean to let go? What does it mean to have loss, changes? Like we're all like collaborating and being open, like, yeah, I don't know how we're going to make it without partners, right? And how are we going to make it without being more open to something that's different that we've never had to do before? Yeah, I'm open to, man, no one's in the office. No one can be in the office. So, yeah, I mean, everyone's working from home. So we need to be open and understanding for those conditions that change the conditions of the business. So I think that for, for again, for women and minorities who have always had to live like that, who've always had to make adjustments, it's great that the vibration of that language and where we are today has allowed me to be able to amplify um, things that I've always been doing and thinking and having to switch and pivot. And now my counterparts who didn't understand that, now we're having a better conversation. And that's what I'm excited about. Where have you uh, spent this past year? Yeah, I mean, here in, this, here in the city, I mean, New York City, and uh, just seeing the city. It's funny, at the beginning of the pandemic, obviously just the fear and everything that was happening was a lot. But what I was really enjoying was just the quietness. And I I really enjoyed the pace. And you know, I was doing uh, close to 200,000 miles traveling around the world. And all of a sudden that just halted and stopped. And you know, the routines of going to the gym, going to here, going to there, just totally change. And what I'm enjoying is the new behavior, new changes that have happened. And, you know, like for the first three or four months of the pandemic, I would say it's still through the summer, through the fall. You know, there was no tourists, you know, there was no one there. And the city became the city. I right? was like, this is who lives here, who's here. Like, this is us. And it was just a different energy. And I enjoyed slowing down um, and just watching and feeling that energy. Because we'll, I mean, hopefully we'll never have to go through this again. Um, we certainly won't go through with the same lens that we went through at this time. And as someone, as a designer, someone who watches behavior and watches people, it was really fascinating to see the behavioral changes that have been happening over the course of the year. Yeah, I'm in Brooklyn and it was just so quiet, you know, and I'm in Williamsburg and it's usually packed yeah. with people and it was just like gone and just like, yeah. So, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, just like being able to walk across the bridge and yeah. traffic had changed, you know, it was just, yeah, I, I just, I really enjoyed that because I knew it was a moment, right? I mean, if you're, if you're safe and, you know, you're not fighting to live and survive and you're healthy, this was a moment that you could actually just slow down and kind of do things and go places that you would have never gone in the past. So do you watch people a lot, like as a designer? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's definitely a fun. I, I, I think one of my favorite pastimes though is really getting lost. I love going to a city. I, the, the, the art of getting lost is gone. Um, art of getting lost is lost. Um, you know, you have your GPS, you have your phone, you, you, it's hard to get lost. And so I love going to a new city, not only watching people, but engaging with people by getting lost and being forced to have to ask questions about how to get somewhere, right? And that's, 
I think we've, you know, a big core of the design for me is not losing the human side of what we do. And because technology has pushed us to where we don't know if we're the robots or the robots are the robots, right? <laughs> it's a little scary. Yeah, it's a little scary. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want to be a robot. And yeah. so, you know, anytime that I can be on analog and very, you know, human to human, I take advantage of that, that opportunity. Yeah. Cause when you get lost, you almost push yourself to be uncomfortable. Right. And that's, yeah. where I think you learn so much about yourself and your surroundings when you are kind of on that edge of, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And that's the opportunity I feel the future of hospitality has is that, you know, how might we create conditions for that human to human connection and allows us to amplify storytelling through that, right? And, you know, what does the lobby mean today? You know, which is, you know, one of the intersections within hotels and restaurants. Um, you know, what does the open kitchen look like now? What does that actually, you know, what was it doing? Is it still the same? Does it provide a, a connection, a through line? You know, what does that actually mean? I think that we need to continue to amplify that human to human connection um, in everything that we do. Totally agree. What do you think the lobby means now? I mean, what do you what are you looking at in hospitality? What do you pay? I mean, the, the lobby is interesting. From for me, it is a place of real vulnerability for um, particularly people of color. Uh, you know, the the incident that happened at the Arlo. Um, hotel um, that happened to be a good friend of mine. Keon is a friend. Um, and I happen to know the guys who owned Arlo, of course. <laughs> and so um, that was uh, an, an interesting episode where I was kind of in between the different conversations, talking to Keon and talking to the, the, the guys over Arlo about the challenges. And it's nothing new. I was just at, in Detroit during the pandemic and I, was, I drove because I didn't want to fly. I parked my car and I got out of my car to go into the hotel and I was coming out. Something that happens, you know, more often than it should, you know, there was a white gentleman, that older gentleman that was coming out and asked me to get his car because he thought I was valet. I was in no way dressed like a valet parker. Um, and it's something that happens quite often and it's unfortunate, but the, the, the transition between me getting from my car or a taxi into my room um, is always a vulnerable space because my face, unfortunately, consistently represents service. My face doesn't represent a person that requires service or desires service. And hotel lobbies um, sometimes can be very confusing um, where there's just this mix of energy that's going on. And when you are a certain person, um, there's an energy there. Uh, you know, and I've had women say the same thing when they're sitting there and are traveling alone. The lobby can be a very vulnerable place where people can infer or think something or feel like they can just talk to you in a certain way. Um, and I do believe that, you know, us studying and understanding lobbies from this idea of what does safety actually look like for different individuals for you and I, safety is different than someone that may be an older white man, right? Um, and right. what does it mean for them to provide certain services or conditions that allow us all to feel safe? And I think that that's, again, when we talk about social justice and the opportunity we have, hospitality has an opportunity right now because we're all amplifying this language to talk about not just diversity and inclusion, all those things, but where does it apply into the built environment? Where does it apply into the program and the design of spaces? And though that's one of the areas that I believe is just low-hanging fruit for reimagining what does it mean to feel safe? Right. It's really interesting. And I always say, too, for women, hallways. Yeah, 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 Long, yeah. Dark hallways. Just, that's right. Yeah. And, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, and so, yeah, I mean, th this is where I'm, I'm hoping we are going in in hospitality design and, and design design in general is um, being empathetic and open 
um, to a wider spectrum. And it's not just about the user experience of some individual that we make up because you and I can't make up what it feels like when we walk into unsafe spaces. Okay. So true. Um, you also, I mean, you're a man, uh, a man of all trades. You also do, uh, you create films, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Films. How did yeah, you get yeah, into yeah. the filmmaking business and why? I mean, filmmaking, I mean, it's, it's really just designed research amplified on a screen, right? I mean, uh, the work that we did in South Africa, spent three years back and forth to South Africa for the film Shodan Spear, um, our latest release of the new Bauhaus film, spent three, four years back and forth between Germany and Chicago and understanding um, the Bauhaus from so many different points of view and, and what design meant, and particularly Mahoudi Naj, which was the central character of the film. Uh, and that was just a fun journey. And yeah, again, I'm kind of a design geek in a way that I, I loved going to the, the, the original Bauhaus and seeing the artifacts and connecting with the people there and also seeing the response to the people seeing me as a filmmaker and, and the work that we were able to do. And so the film is out. If people want to see it, they can certainly reach out. Um, we're going to be releasing, officially releasing the film later in the summer because of COVID. We released it in 2019 because 2019 was the 100 year celebration of the Bauhaus. And so 2020, obviously we know what happened there. So we're finally just releasing the film. But for me, filmmaking is storytelling. And, you know, I, I love, you know, the ability to do the research and then take that and then actually provide an, a real artifact that you can see the stories come alive. Amazing. And does your filmmaking influence your physical making as well? Yeah. Know, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, in, everything we do is about storytelling. Uh, you know, I want people to walk into the spaces that we've helped to design and see themselves, right? I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, if you don't see yourself, then you don't feel welcomed, you don't feel safe. And for us, telling stories and amplifying those stories and making sure that people see themselves, whether it's in the built environment, um, as well in filmmaking, uh, you know, the Bauhaus, the central figure in the story was Maholi's daughter, Hachala, and the director of the film, um, Alyssa, the woman. Um, but we also understand the Bauhaus left out a lot of women, <laughs> right? There's a, there's, a huge, there's a huge hole. And you know, even the women that were there um, got pushed into weaving. And you know, there's a whole rabbit hole of conversation that we can have there. But we were intentional in making sure that the filmmaking side and the voice um, came from women, because when you think about the Bauhaus, Maholi in particular, there were strong women leading the Bauhaus, not strong women behind him. Um, these were women who were leading, and he was behind being pulled. Um, and that's the type of stories that we want to share and make sure that we're putting forth. And everything that we're doing, we're always finding that balance of intentional um, equity and balance of voices in the design process. Very cool. And how do you pick these subjects to dive into? I don't know. I think some of the subjects pick us and pick me. And there you, <laughs> you know, go. Like, yeah, I, I. When you're open and you're curious, um, you things happen. Yeah, you know, and I, you know, my theory. I, said it earlier, you know, this, this idea of creating conditions to be surprised starts with opening yourself to the proximity of luck, right? And so you know, New York City is a great example of the proximity of luck, of riding on the L train, you never know who you're going to sit next to and um, good or bad, <laughs> you know, you sit at a park, <laughs> uh, you walk down the street, uh, you know, like, you know, you and I are just degrees apart in people and things that we've been doing. And so uh, when you create conditions to be surprised, the proximity of luck allows you to not be too far away from the things that inspire you. Yeah. So true. And I'm just looking at your website as we talk. I mean, the work that you all do is uh, 
so diverse and interesting. And, you know, there is, you have done a lot of work with schools and education and Black mm-hmm. Girls Code and yep. uh, XQ Super School and, you know, just naming a couple of them. Uh, <laughs> why is working in education so important to you and rethinking, yeah. you know, what education is in a way? Yeah, I mean, for, for us, you know, we, we say that we work at the intersection of people, cities, and planet. And the way that I see cities as a systems design, similar to like an iOS on your phone, right? And so you have this um, operating system. The, our operating system is the city. Within that operating system, you have education, you have healthcare, you have mobility. And so the projects that we take on help to weave together um, the, the different nodes within the system and education is really important in regards to understanding how we're actually going about our life, both access to education and then the outcome of education as well, and making sure that we're helping to design out the better conditions for those types of platform. So that's the reason why, you know, when you look at our work, not only are we you know, continuing and even more touching, say, larger master planning projects within cities. We're also, it's also important for us to think about the different verticals within the operating system, like education, um, like the work that I've done in prison reform, um, healthcare. Um, I also helped to start an urban ocean lab, um, thinking about coastal cities and climate change as a social justice issue. And what does sea level rise mean for communities of color um, who are going to have to have, you know, move away and manage retreat? And so some people will be like, oh, wow, Marquis, you're kind of everywhere. Like, no, I'm a systems designer. We don't live in these little boxes. We all drive around and we're all influenced by the things that have happened, like Superstorm Sandy. It affected us all right? It affected schools, it affected roads, it affected people's jobs and health. And so not only do we work at that level of, from an environmental standpoint, we're also working at the level of the effects of that on those different verticals like education. You know, we just received a grant, Rockefeller grant for the Urban Ocean Lab. And the the core of the grant really is thinking about innovation and collaboration. Um, the Urban Ocean Lab, the three um, co-founders, you know, founded, written by Ayana Johnson and co-founded with um, my, myself and, and Jean, um, is we have a policymaker, we have a scientist, and we have a designer. And what I really understand from the grant, um, why they brought us in, was that they want to understand what collaboration looks like. Um, For us, the core of what we're expanding on is looking at um, this platform, the Blue New Deal, and thinking about, so we had the Green New Deal and then needed to expand because the Green New Deal left out oceans. And so Dr. Ayanna Johnson and a few others really pushed to create the, the, the Blue New Deal and thinking about the importance of oceans. And so, you know, right now, you know, one of my most exciting projects is down at Red Hook. Through COVID, we pivoted out of Flatiron um, in, in the city in Manhattan. We were right there in Flatiron areas and we moved down to Red Hook, down on the water. And the office down there it sits right on the pier. And Red Hook itself is just a vulnerable neighborhood to sea level rise and Superstorm Sandy did, you know, great damage to that that whole area. And for us, understanding what managed retreat is looking like, what it's going to look like, what it's continued to push, um, everything from sunny day flooding, all the way to you know storm surges, um, everything to sewage as we know here in New York City, you don't want to go surfing or going in the water during a rainstorm. It's disgusting, um, and very dangerous. And so um, I was also part of AIA New York's Comprehensive Waterfront Plan Initiative. Um, and so 
really thinking about coastal cities and thinking about climate change is something that very much keeps me up at night. And that coupled with the work that we're doing on the development side, and this again, where it does pedal back to hospitality and, you know, I'm going down to Miami in a couple of weeks and, you know, that's a city that <laughs> who knows, right? Um, the studies say that we do know what's going to happen. Um, but from a people standpoint and development standpoint, and particularly the hospitality, you know, we need to make some hard decisions as soon as possible. And, you know, going down there and staying in hotels right on the water, I sit there sometime and I just imagine like, this is not going to be here. And we keep pumping money in and we're not planning for what's next. And so again, from a designer, system designer, being a part of an urban ocean lab, being able to um, leverage that to inform the work that we do helps to accelerate how we amplify the insights for the built environment, because we have to think about those things. What do you hope to do with this grant? Is it to... To continue to do studies. I mean, we're working with... Yeah, we're... (laughs) I mean, the the outcome um, of the is to help to influence policy, um, both at the national and federal level, all the way down to the city neighborhood level as well. Um, This grant allows us to continue to expand that research and develop it even more. And, you know, we're we're always, we're looking to grow and um, making sure that we can have the influence that's necessary over policy as, you know, companies are developing, um, you know, hospitality hotels are still building on the water and having a waterfront property is still a big deal. Um, we need to reimagine that. We need to think about that. And hopefully the work that we do there, coupled with the design work that we do, can help to better inform the future of particularly hospitality along coastal cities. Yeah. And this is going, I'm sure this is a very challenging project that you're working on, but uh, looking back, what has been one of the most challenging or one of the most uh, eye-opening projects you've worked on? I mean, the low line, which is, was an ambitious project to build an underground park in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, uh, was one of the founding board members and ended up being the co-chair of the board. Um, that project itself was just such an eye-opening to how do you get things done in this this city? How do you get things done in the Lower East Side that has a really strong community base? And how do you raise money? How do you go out and raise money while not getting too ahead of engaging with the community? And how do you try to secure a space that's run partially by the state, MTA, but you know, it's in the city, right? So it was such an amazing um, journey for us and me personally in understanding how a major city like New York City works and how do you actually get a project going here. And over the course of, you know, seven, eight years, um, definitely was on this amazing journey of learning how to do that. And it definitely has springboard, you know, many of the things that we do at Open Box because of, you know, having to understand, you know, different communities, different aspects of the community. I mean, the Lower East Side has so many representations of communities that, you know, as soon as you have one side, the other side is mad and you, you, you have to work in between the nuances of why people are angry and what that, because a lot of times it had nothing to do with us. It had a lot to do with things that had happened way before we even got, you know, got to the scene. So that project definitely is one that has stretched me, pushed me, it's given me a lot of good insight um, lessons that I've learned that I'm applying today in real time. Um, so I would say that would, that's definitely one of the defining projects of my career. Um, you also recently launched a uh, Deem journal. You're again, just yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I thought I was busy. (laughs) Yeah, no, we are all busy. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Deep Journal, it it came out of the desire to have a platform that allowed um, us and particularly myself to speak about design in a different way than having, say, a blog or something through open box. Wanted something print. Uh, print because evidence is really important mm-hmm. uh, and having an artifact of evidence like filmmaking, but this one you can actually touch. You know, we are you know, the swipe culture, you know, of swiping up and liking um, is one thing, but this is where I go back to not losing what it means to be human and particularly what it means to be human and having your own private experience with the magazine, a journal that is not just this quick read, but you can actually curl up to it and dive in and come back to it. Um, and then it's engaging. And it's speaking about design without um, overemphasizing shiny objects. And so there's very few design journals out there that have a really good voice of, of brown and black individuals and women uh, that's focused on design as a social practice that allows you to go in and it's not about, um, you know, ur- urban, uh, I guess there's some best word I can say is urban porn of like, oh God, look at this graffiti, look at this building, look what this black kid did. No, that's not what this is about. This is about looking at the thinking behind what people are doing and the intentions and the energy and the intellect of people that, you may not think because they didn't go to quote the right schools or you know join the right affinity group or have the right certification, um, but they have the right spirit, they have the right heart, and this is the work that they're doing. And we have a great balance between academia and social practice um, in real time. And so Dean Journal, we're launching our second edition coming up. Um, and we have Lauren Hensley, who's going to be on the front cover, who's an amazing artist, who's always exploring architecture and design. She's out of LA. And so, yeah, if you haven't seen it, you should check it out. How do you constantly stay inspired and motivated um, in, through everything that you're doing? I'm so curious. <laughs> and, you know, it's like, it's just that balance between curiosity and vulnerability, right? It's like you can't be truly curious if you're not willing to be vulnerable, meaning that you're willing to wake up every day and start over and say, I know nothing, right? And I feel like the older I, older I get, the younger I become because I realize I know nothing at all, you know? And, you know, this pandemic has just been a great example of, wow, we're really not that smart of a human race, man. You know, like we we can't even figure out why we should wear a mask um, and how to control this thing, right? And so uh, I'm just so curious about life and really be believe in the power of the we and really believe that it is, you know, justice begins with just us and we need us all to to come together and through collaboration, through partnership, through conversations like this, right. uh, to continue to move us forward and, and help us to ask better questions. Yeah. Is there anyone throughout your career or recently that you've just learned so much from or looked at as a mentor or an inspiration? I mean, there's, there's plenty of, people but for me i find inspiration through the simplest things um i i try my best not to just attach myself to like one individual or one mentor one like thought leader and i would say the same thing to anyone that may be hearing me or or read about the things that i do like i'm i'm just figuring i'm just trying to figure things out and i happen to be in a place where people want to talk to me, but doesn't mean I'm an expert. I definitely do not believe I'm an expert in anything outside of um, being curious. And so, you know, I, 
I have, you know, individuals that I look to, I read, I love art. Um, I love, um, like you said, just seeing someone on a subway who's just playing music and they just stop you. I mean, those are like my favorite moments where you just see something out of the blue, you know, that just makes you forget that you're supposed to be somewhere. Those are the magic moments for me. Um, You know, and when I see, you know, at sunset, the shadows hitting the city, like I'm, I'm just, again, a designer, just my eyes and seeing color. I love that. Those are the things that really inspire me and really spark new thinking in me is when I see new moments that I've never seen before because I've either been forced to slow down because it's just so beautiful or I've been, I'm slowing down because, you know, the world has pushed us to slow down. And now I'm actually bringing that more into my practice. I think, you know, hopefully we all walk away from this pandemic moment, knowing how to slow our feet, at least, you know, a couple steps slower. Um, and I, I'm still able to get a lot of things done because I keep a lot of smart people around me. I'm intentional about the work. Um, and I am constantly being inspired. So what has been your greatest lesson learned along the way? My greatest lesson learned is believing in your gut. Like there's something special about being a being human. And this is why I go back to empathetic muscle. And being able to really trust that thing that you can't explain. And if you can trust the things you can't explain, then you're probably heading in the right direction. And most of the time, people are going to question it and go, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? And, you know, it takes 10 to 12 years to have overnight success. And I've just been pushing it for a very long time. And... I am finding a sweet spot because I trusted my gut. Amazing. Well, congrats on all that you are doing and welcome to the publishing world. Um, yes. <laughs> but, uh, this is just thank you. This has been no, thank you. No, this has been so much fun. I really appreciate you supporting me and, and work that I, I really appreciate, you know, being in the magazine. I love what you're doing and yeah. You know, whatever I can do to help and support, please let me know. I will. Don't, don't say that because you'll hear a lot <laughs> from me. But, no. yeah. but thank you. And please keep in touch on everything you're working on. I will. I will. Thanks for listening to Hospitality Designs, What I've Learned. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find full episodes and transcripts at hospitalitydesign.com.